We launch into the second portion of this first parenthesis. I'd like to revisit Dania's question last week about Revelation 14.4. They're not here, but that's all right. I wrote it all out for her. So now I share it with you. Lucky you. As I wrote to her earlier this week, there are two reasons why I stumbled a bit when answering her question in class. First, I intentionally used only verse 1 of chapter 14. Uh, as a cross-reference to our passage in Revelation 7. I didn't intend to take it further. As is always the case, somebody asks a question that goes beyond what we're teaching. Thank you very much. I just set aside the following verses, 2 to 5, in my study for when we'd actually be in the chapter 14 time frame. Thus, I had not yet studied that passage in depth. Second, as is so often the case in our study of the last things, there is no direct, conclusive, easy answer to the question. Opinions vary, of course. And here in this instance, there's pretty solid evidence that this is one passage, 14.4, that can indeed be interpreted, as they say, spiritually or metaphorically rather than literally. For the most part, we've been dealing in literal interpretation of our texts. The text says 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. That's what'll happen. Here in this passage, 14.4, rather than literally, specifically for our understanding of, quote, defiled with women, end quote, and, quote, kept themselves chaste, or other translations, virgins, end quote. So to answer Dania's question more thoroughly and accurately, I did the requisite study, and here are my conclusions. We cannot say dogmatically whether the 144,000 are all men or not. Nor can we say conclusively that the 144,000 are married or not. Now, because of this group's integral evangelistic and leadership role during not just the tribulation, but probably the millennium, I would nonetheless conclude that the 144,000 are indeed all men, probably. As to their marital status, the passage does not confirm this one way or the other. The term translated, quote, defiled with women, refers to extramarital activity, not the marriage bed. In other words, visiting prostitutes, adultery, etc., and never, never in God's word refers to the marriage bed. Indeed, to the contrary, marital relations are honored in God's word. There's no defilement at all. So this cannot be used to show that the men remained unmarried, 
Correspondingly, it's not conclusive that, quote, they are virgins in the ESV or kept themselves chaste in the NASB means they abstained from any and all sexual relations. Note, as do most commentators, how the Apostle Paul used the same term, the very same term, in his second letter to the Corinthians. I'm reading 11, chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. Notice how he associates this purity. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. So the, the key phrase in that, I betrothed you to one husband. The church is the bride of Christ. We are faithful to Him. We are devoted to our husband. And He calls that being a virgin. Pure virgin. So, here the idea of virginity or purity is applied to those who have remained faithful to Christ. And the same is said of the 144,000 in Revelation 14. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Verse 4. Note that in that key phrase from 2 Corinthians, I betrothed you to one husband. So in the metaphor, which of course is not really a metaphor at all, our earthly marriage is an illustration of our marriage of the church to Christ. He's saying, you're married. You're married to Christ. Because of that, I might, I hope, to present you as a pure virgin. Now, my personal conclusion. The 144,000 are probably all men because of their evangelistic and leadership roles. And they very well could be married, but whether they are or not, they are sanctified as those who were utterly faithful to Christ and thus deemed pure. So, it's a good question. We learned a lot from it. It just took, two, it took a week, that's all. Now, for our passage. A scene in heaven. Last week we looked at the 144,000 sealed, that is, protected, sanctified, and literally marked on their foreheads. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, while the four angels held back their respective winds, in quotation marks, winds, which I suggested seem to represent not moving air, but is a euphemism for the powers granted to the angels to inflict damage on the earth. That's what was being held back, not, not the wind, but harm to the earth. We next turn to Act 2 in this cinematic epic. The multitude gathered around the throne to worship God 
and the lamb. Ooh, did I give out the third one? Is it still sitting there? Did I? Did I give? Well, we'll find out. Turn please to Revelation 7. Let's read verses 9 to 12. Who has that? Yeah, Patty. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen indeed. Act one of this parenthesis was set on earth. Act two, verses 9 to 17, is set in heaven specifically around the throne of God. This scene would be a foretaste of a scene in heaven at the end of the tribulation. But I believe it will be shown prior to the return of Christ and His earthly reign during the millennium. I hope to show that before we're done today. So what we have here, it would seem, is a preview of the triumphant celebration in heaven marking the end of the anguish, the persecution, and martyrdom of the Great Tribulation. So last week, that image looked back to the beginning of the Tribulation, as the chart shows. Chart shows. Come on, Mike, let's get with it here. Whereas this one points forward to the end of the tribulation. The 144,000 points back. I know, I know it's confusing. Greg, you're right. I, but Linda won't let me go back and redo it again. The scroll goes this way. Everything from now on goes that way. So... This points back to the beginning, but not to seven, back to one. Whereas this one points forward to seven, but not to this. So, clear as mud. <clears throat> Blame Linda. She won't let me go back and fix it. Do you have extra? Yes, ma'am. We, we have. See the aforementioned Mrs. As one might expect, the focus of this scene, the center around which everything else takes place, is the throne of God. But note that here John seems to go out of his way to make the point that only Father God is seated upon the throne. You might miss this. 
Different from other passages of the eschaton, for example, Revelation 3.21 or John 14.9, here Father and Son are not interchangeable. See how John draws the distinction. distinction. First in verse 9, the people are, quote, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That is, the Lamb is not on the throne. The, the word translated before, enopion, means before the face of, in the presence of, in the sight of the Lamb. Verse 10, the people cry out, quote, Salvation to our God. The Greek is Theos, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is, the Lamb is worthy of praise, but is not sitting on the throne. In verses 11 to 12, God alone is specified here as the recipient of the worship, and the Lamb is not mentioned. And then verses 14 to 17, the two roles are further delineated. The worshipers serve God, and the Lamb serves the worshipers. They worship and serve the one on the throne of God, but the Lamb's placement is more ambiguous with in the center of or in the midst of the throne. Let me add a sidebar here. From, From this and other passages, we might conclude that in heaven's temple, the throne room of God, and there is a temple, excuse me, There is a temple in heaven. There is a tabernacle. The, in, that, <clears throat> in that tabernacle, the principal throne, or shall we say chair, we'll call it a chair, is placed on a raised dais. Raised or not, there's a dais. There's the chair, and in m- multiple passages, the th- the surrounding area around the throne, the chair, is called the throne of God. And there are instances where the word throne refers exclusively to the chair. Others, the chair and the dais. For Though not seated in the chair, the Lamb is said to be in the center or midst of the throne. Well, I don't don't think that means he's standing on a chair when God the Father is in that chair. I think he's around the center of the throne, the throne, the big area, because there's more people on the throne. So when I add up these distinctions, I conclude, not being dogmatic, just my personal conclusion, that we place this scene at the end of the tribulation, but what in the world is that? Oh, coming back tonight, I'm sorry. No, that's it.
<clears throat> Never mind. Verse 9. In many respects, this scene mirrors those set in chapters 4 and 5, especially in the cast members closest to the throne, angels, elders, four living creatures. It's easy to imagine that these central characters as being on the raised dais as well. They are always set apart from anyone else in the scene. The four, elder, the four living creatures are said to be the closest to the chair. But in those earlier chapters, there is no mention of people like you and me, except for our inclusion in five, chapter 5, verse 13. Every created thing, that, that's us. Here in our passage, John gives more specifics regarding this, quote, great multitude. He writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Well, how did John know this? How did he know that the crowd before him was from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues? Well, the late great Haddon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon has the answer. That great 19th century Baptist preacher. I tell you, you have not read the Psalms until you've read Haddon Spurgeon's Treasury of David. When he writes, the page glows. Here's what he writes about this. I suppose as he looked at them, he could tell where they come from. There is individuality in heaven. Depend on it. Every seed will have its own body. There will sit down in heaven not three unknown patriarchs, but Abraham, you will know him. Isaac, you will know him. Jacob, you will know him. There will be in heaven not a company of persons all struck off alike so that you cannot tell who is who, but they will be out of every nation and kindred and people and tongue. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And these are clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. The fact that they are in white robes ties this scene back to the vision of the fifth seal in which the martyrs are underneath the altar. As we read the, pas read the passage again, note especially verse 11. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. Ah. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then, there were each, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
Well, now we know who these are in the white robes and why, they're wear- why they are wearing them. These are the ones for whom the earlier martyrs were waiting, quote, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Verses 14 to 17 will add more specifics to confirm this, but verse 9 is sufficient to identify them. And they were holding palm branches. Spurgeon again. Palm branches were emblems of victory. It shows this great multitude celebrates a great victory. The palm, the ensign of triumph, indicates most certainly a conflict and conquest. As on earth, palm would not be given if not won. We may conclude that the Lord would not have distributed the prize unless there had been a preceding warfare and victory. Now, my notes. So when I add up these distinctions, I conclude, not being dogmatic, just my personal conclusion, that we place this scene at the end of the tribulation. These people are rejoicing over a great victory. Earlier in the tribulation would have been premature. But, I think, prior to Christ's triumphant return as Lord of the earth for the millennium, because he's called here in this passage the Lamb, and he's not on a throne. When he returns, he'll be on a throne, and he will be on earth for a thousand years. So that's why I place it where I did. Boy, got that in. Verse 10. Don't miss the content of their praise. Quote, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In their praise, they identify the ones responsible for their being saved. It's not, oh God, be saved. It's, oh God, thank you for our salvation. God and the Lamb. They did not die in vain because they and their garments had been made white in the blood of the Lamb. Now verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. So you get the the blocking on this. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. As in chapters 4 and 5, we have a picture of the hierarchy in heaven's temple. The four living creatures are apparently nearest the chair, with the elders upon their own chairs in a circle or semicircle around them. Surrounding this dais comes next all of heaven's angels. And they, the text says, all of them, fall down in worship of the Lord God. The text here does not indicate if the multitude joins in this worship or if it's just the regulars. Walvert assumes it includes the multitude. I can't imagine it wouldn't. What would you be doing if all that was going on? Verse 12. 
All of this so far, up to this point, has just been by way of an introduction. The real meat and purpose of this vision is in the passage that follows. But I'd like to pause for just a moment to appreciate what is laid before us here. And in chapters 4 and 5, and later in chapters 15 and 19, it's not just a picture of our future occupation as believers and servants of Christ, but it's a textbook definition of true worship. The Greek word proskuneo, always translated worship, means to kiss, to adore, do reverence to, bow down before, prostrate oneself before. We have in our day cheapened that word, worship. Gather up all these scenes of heavenly worship and you'll note that true worship includes nothing of the horizontal. Nothing. Nothing horizontal. It's all vertical. Focused upon either Father God or Christ Jesus. Here, the Lamb. Note the content of their worship. Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In true worship, we declare, we proclaim, we ascribe to, and thus renew in ourselves the unique and eternal qualities of our God. By that I mean we live in a world that is constantly beating us down away from God. Constantly. Constantly. Every you get up in the morning, there it is. Beating us, pushing us away from God. In worship, we renew that relationship. In in worship, we remind ourselves. We're not telling him anything he doesn't know. We remind ourselves, you are God and I am not. You are holy. You are righteous. You are pure. We offer up to him only what he deserves as our sovereign Lord. He is glory. He is wisdom. He is deserving of our thanksgiving and honor. He is power and might. And beyond this, he is holy and just and righteous and eternal. Another form of worship, a slightly lower but still authentic form, is our obedience and service to him. Look at verse 15. What are these doing who surround the throne? Quote, they serve him day and night in his temple. End quote. That word translated serve is latruo. And it's always associated with service rendered to God. Not service to others, not service to ourselves. It is divine service. And it's sometimes even translated worship. Every follower of Christ is going to be doing this for eternity. So our worship today on earth should follow the heavenly example. Now, let's read the next portion. 
verses 13 to 17 of chapter 7. Did I give that one out? Oh, good. Go ahead. 13 to 17. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So let's look first at verses 13 to 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, <laughs> these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And <laughs> if, if an elder asked that of me, I'd say, well, <laughs> you know, why are you asking me? My Lord, kurios, just a form of respect, could be translated sir. My Lord, you know. And he said to me, ah, funny you ask. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Let's back up a minute here and consider who, who are the heavenly elders? They're mentioned several times in Revelation. I'll offer here a condensed version. If you desire more specifics, let me know. The short answer is, of course, we don't know for sure, so what else is new? Most agree they are a representative group, but of which group? I'll tell you, studying the end times, it's fascinating because you're confronted with things you never imagined people believed. People will say, oh, well, these are such and such. Where do you get that? I don't know. Just that. There's such a... People believe all sorts of things about last things. Revelation 5.9 is a key passage that illustrates the divide. The King James versions quote the elders in their praise of the Lamb. Quote, this is King James. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Okay, so King James says us with the elders speaking. Now, the rest of our versions say something along the lines of the NASB. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Well, that's quite a difference. That is, one set of manuscripts has the elders being redeemed, which would make them men who are representatives of probably the church. While other manuscripts, the difference is one letter in one Greek word. That's what we're talking about here. One letter in one Greek word. I think it's the letter I in transliterated. Leave open the possibility that these are not men, but some claim angelic beings. 
Note that this second version does not remove the possibility of them being men. It just opens the door to them being someone else or something else. Nothing is proved one way or the other. Having looked at the evidence, I favor the position that these are redeemed elders of the church. Not just because of that one letter in the Greek, but because I do not think a group of angels would be called elders. They'd be called something else. Elders is a very human, earthly description. Something that human beings can latch on to. Especially since it's part of our earthly church, the body of Christ. Now, in a fine example of Socratic teaching, one of the elders approaches John and puts to him a question, which, of course, he hasn't the answer, so the elder himself supplies it. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This multitude is not comprised of every human being in heaven but specifically those followers of Christ instead of the beast who have been killed because of their faith. It's possible it includes all who died for any reason, but the emphasis in this passage is on those who have been victorious in death, white robes, palm branches, victory, by standing for their Christ during the tribulation not giving in to Antichrist. The text states literally, they which came out of the tribulation, comma, the great one. That is, if we're to subdivide the tribulation, this speaks of the worst of it during the second half. Verse 15. For this reason... They are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. (laughs) Love that phrase. For this reason. What reason? Well, they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He has saved them by merciful death out of the intense persecution of the tribulation. For this reason, they gladly serve and worship the Lord God. Walvard writes this, the expression, day and night, can be understood as meaning simply that they will continually serve the Lord. That is, they will not need sleep or restoration as is necessary in earthly toil. They are delivered from the limitations of this life. No more Sunday afternoon naps in heaven. Verse 16. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Here's the beauty of redeemed death during that horrific time. No longer must they suffer living with hunger and thirst, the misery of a desert-like heat and unremitting sun. They are now home in the tent of their compassionate God and Savior. That's what tabernacle means. They're in His tent. Verse 17, For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, 
and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away, will wipe every tear from their eyes. David Guzik asks, then answers the question, doesn't Jesus shepherd us now? Isn't He close to us and caring for us now? Yes, but in heaven it will be so much more. End quote. Then he quotes Spurgeon with his, that man's remarkable gift for imagery. This is classic Spurgeon. The true Christian life when we live near to God is the rough draft of the life of full communion above. We have seen the artist make with his pencil or with his charcoal a bare outline of his picture. It is nothing more, but still one could guess what the finished picture will be from the sketch before you. How well put. As good as it gets on this earth, as good as it can be in our relationship and walk with Christ, It's just a mere sketch, a rough outline, a quick few-minute outline of what it will be one day when we see Him face to face, when we are under His tent. And no less so than for those who have been martyred, who have suffered intense persecution and killed during the tribulation. In conclusion, this passage proves that there will be Christians on earth during the tribulation. New Christians. Whether they were converted by the dramatic rapture, which I think is very possible, by the testimony of the 144,000 Messianic Jews, that'll be their job, or the ministry of the two witnesses, which we'll encounter later in chapter 11. There will be new believers after the rapture, many of them, thousands, maybe millions. And because of their persecution and death for the name of Christ, God holds them in high esteem. They will be precious to Him. They will be honored. There is no better measure of His grace, His mercy, His compassion than the phrase, He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Even in the midst of his terrible wrath, which is what the tribulation is all about, poured out on earth during these seven years, our God will remain, as always, a compassionate, merciful God who demonstrates a tender heart for those who live in him. We've got just a few minutes if there's any any thoughts questions rebukes
Yeah, I don't. I didn't. What? Can you explain that again then, Al? <laughs> um, just a couple of thoughts. I just realized how a lot of times as Christians, even though we know death for our loved ones, obviously for those who are Christians, is... You know, it says, I think, in one of the Psalms, it's precious in God's eyes. He looks at death a lot differently than we do, you know, because I, I, I think a lot of us, God gives us the desire to live here on earth. But we, what you were saying is a lot of times it's a blessing when he takes us home. Obviously, it's a blessing when he takes us home. We're out of this mess and uh, you know what I mean? It's it just makes you think about life and death. And I'm glad someday death is going to be defeated overall. Yes. But right now, it it it's but, a blessing. But remember the context here. Don't forget the context. These are people who suffered horribly. Yeah. In ways that we can't even imagine. And God, and they died, which is, you know, that's not a pleasant thing. But they yeah. died to God. They died, died to the Lamb. Mm-hmm. They are with Him now. And even for us, you know, it's it's a blessing for us. Yes. And uh, it's something that uh, the that, whole... That's the pull, isn't it? That's yeah. The flesh tells us, oh, you want to stay here as long as possible. My, I want to be with my family. I want to be with my kids and yeah. my grandkids. Uh, I want to... I have so much to live for here. Mm. But then the Spirit reminds us, well, you think this is good? Mm. You ain't seen nothing yet. Mm. That's, that's the tug, isn't it, between flesh and the Spirit? Mm. And the other thing I wanted to mention, you talked about worship is true worship. And here on earth, Romans 12.1, it talks about our lives uh, you know, the way we live and obey Christ and live for him. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So that just go along with what you said. Well, actually, it doesn't. Let me clarify. What I described that we see here in God's Word, I refer to as specific worship. I'll try to be brief. I could, I could go for hours on this. I'll try to be brief. Worship, praise, thanksgiving. We repeatedly see those in God's Word. They are different. They are not to be lumped together. Sometimes praise is very close to worship, but if you notice, almost always, maybe not literally always, but invariably, praise is followed by thanksgiving. There's an association between praise and thanksgiving. So worship is specific worship. I love you, God. That's specific worship. I adore you. You are holy and just, and I am not. I'm on my face before you. That's specific worship. 
There's other forms of worship, how we live, how we serve, how we show up on work day and clean the toilets. That can be a form of worship if you're doing it for the right reason. If you're doing it because you want to show off, that's not worship. If you're doing it, I love you, God, and I want to serve your body here, then it's an act that is holy. That is nonspecific worship in, by my definition. So, worship, praise, thanksgiving. Anything else? In other, oh, I didn't finish the thought. Sorry. Praise is very often associated with praising God for something He has done. I praise you for answering my prayer. Thank you. So that's why they're, they're associated very often. Worship is not thanking Him for what He's done for us. Worship, specific worship, is completely vertical and says, I praise you, I worship you for who you are. Even if you are having a terrible life, you think he isn't answering my prayers, you still worship him because he is God. Because of who he is, not because of what he's done. That's praise. Praise and thanksgiving. I praise you for answering my prayers. I thank you for healing my mother. Okay, anything else? We're a little late. The email is DSL. <laughs> Father God, we do indeed bow down before you. We see in this passage the adoration of the Godhead in heaven. And we thank you for the privilege that one day we will share in that face-to-face, in person. We are amazed by You, by Your grace, by Your mercy and generosity. So we live our lives in devotion to You, out of thanksgiving. Not to purchase Your love, we already have that. But out of gratitude. And appreciation. Thank you for sharing with us your word. May our study of it and these last things glorify you and your church, your your son. In Jesus' name, amen.